Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Garland Nixon is on the Corporate Media Watch with Contradiction. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. I report things that I find that I think are of consequence, are of philosophical consequence, that give us a deeper view into the world, right? So one of the things that's happening, I'm not going to report it on all of them. I'll just get to the latest one. 2019, the United States, you can look this up, the U.S. Uh, War College wrote an article, and they talked about Taiwan. We've got to protect Taiwan from China. Now, keep in mind something before I go any further with Taiwan. The United Nations, the United States, virtually every country with, I think there's 12 countries now in the entire world out of like 187 countries or something. There are 12 countries that don't recognize Taiwan as part of China. The United States on the U.S., on our State Department's website, it officially says we adhere to the one China policy. There's something called the three communiques. I'm not going to get on all of that, but I know what I'm talking about. And you can go to the U.S. State Department website and you can see that the U.S. State Department says Taiwan is part of China. The U.N. says Taiwan is part of China. Virtually every country, Taiwan is part of China. And the U.S. is like, yes, Taiwan should be independent and sovereign. Well, what would you think if China said, you know, Puerto Rico should be independent and sovereign? Why don't we send some weapons to Puerto Rico so that they can protect themselves from the United States? Doggone it, if the United States tries to go to Puerto Rico, we're taking it. How do you think the U.S., what do you think the U.S. would do? You think we'd be okay with that? Ah, well, you know, they got to write it. No, we would not. So we officially take the position that Taiwan is part of China. And at the same time, we say we've got to send weapons to Taiwan. Why? To protect themselves from China. So we're sending, that'd be like China sending weapons to Virginia. Hey, what are you doing that for? Well, you never know. The United States might try to overthrow Virginia. It's already part of the United States. We recognize it. They do. That is the hypocrisy here. That is the lies here. That is why when somebody says to you about Taiwan, the immediate question has to be, doesn't the U.S. State Department recognize Taiwan as part of China? Yes. Well, then how can we make an argument for independence or sovereignty or anything for Taiwan? You see, my dear and fluffy friends, it exposes the lie. It ain't got nothing to do with Taiwan independence and sovereignty. Nothing. The United States position on Taiwan is in itself contradictory. It's a contradiction, isn't it? This is one of those things that if you put A and B together, they don't make sense, right? A, the United States recognizes Taiwan as part of China officially. B, the United States says Taiwan should be independent from China and we're good. we got to protect them from China. Those two things are contradictory. They don't go together, do they? And there's a reason they don't go together. Because the U.S.'s position on Taiwan has nothing to do with right and wrong or good or bad. You know, do you know what it has to do with? All you got to do is read what the U.S. says. All you got to do is read the RAND reports. All you got to do is listen to them and they'll tell you it has to do with one thing. The United States is mad with China. Because China had the temerity to grow an economy as big, if not bigger, than the United States. That's all it is. The U.S. says they're threatening the world order. What world order? The world order that we are in control of. Well, guess what? Don't they have a right to? Do we have a right to control the world? Do we have a right to say, you know, China is not allowed to grow bigger than us? In fact, the leaders of China have a duty to grow their country and help their people all they can. We got a duty to do that. But our government does not do that. They spend all of their money lining their filthy pockets and lining the pockets of their corporate cronies and lining the pockets of the war machine. And lying to you about why they're doing it. The government is constantly lying to you. It's hard for people like me. I've, it's, it's been hard for me for years. I got to tell you, for years it's been difficult for me. You know why? I, I always go back to weapons of mass destruction. I had family members. Well, Garland, you know, we've got to deal with Saddam. And I'm like, you know, you're being had. The government's lying to you. I have been saying the same thing for the last 20 years, 30 years, or at least 20, 25 years. The government's lying to you. And no matter how much they lie to you, I always have people that give me this blank stare with, oh, no, I think this time they're telling the truth. 
Have you ever seen a time when they were telling the truth? No, but I really believe this time they are. They ain't. They ain't. They ain't. They ain't. Taiwan has nothing to do with independence, nothing to do with sovereignty. It has to do with the United States trying to stop China from growing, which China has every right to do. It is malevolent. It is malicious. It is downright evil what the leaders of our country are doing in their attempts to, quote, contain China. What right does the United States have to contain another country that's trying to grow on their own? Ours is falling apart. They got high-speed rail. They got all these things. And then the United States has the nerve to say they don't have freedom. First of all, ain't none of your business what they got. They have—if the people in China want or not want whatever they got, what business is it in the United States right now to go to Greenland? Well, you know, the people in Greenland don't have a right to smoke weed. So we'll just invade. We'll overthrow them. Let's ship weapons over there. Why? Because we think they should have the right to smoke weed. and they don't. We may think they have a right to smoke weed. In fact, I do. But— Irrelevant to that is we do not have the right to go to their country and tell them what they should or shouldn't do. That's up to the people of Greenland. And might I add, it's also up to the people of China. Let me do something that will expose that we are like. So the United States, oh, we got to we got to protect uh, Taiwan, man. We got I mean, China would do terrible things, invade them, kill people, blow things up. We couldn't have that, could we? Uh, let's look at the Eurasian Times. We can find it all over the place. Look it up yourself. <clears throat> U.S. threatens to blow up Taiwan's semicon- semiconductor factory firm if China invades the island. Taipei unhappy. Taipei is the country's uh, um, uh, the capital. You know how they say Washington, D.C. or whatever. Okay. Taiwan's defense minister, Chu Kong-shung, has responded to U.S. Congressman Seth Moulton's proposal stating that the Taiwanese armed forces should not stand for the destruction of any of their facilities. Congressman Moulton recently suggested that the U.S. should warn China by threatening to target Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company if China were to attack Taiwan. During a conference hosted by the Milken Institute, a California-based think tank, U.S. Congressman Seth Moulton was asked about the potential deterrent impact of U.S. chip policy on China. In response, Moulton suggested that the U.S. should explicitly warn China that targeting Taiwan could destroy Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company, TSMC. Quote, the U.S. should make it very clear to the Chinese that if you invade Taiwan, we're going to blow up TSMC. So, we're for their independence. Taiwan has to look out for themselves. Nobody should make decisions for Taiwan. The United States is there to ensure that Taiwan is independent, to ensure that they're sovereign, that nobody makes decisions for them. Nobody, and, and China ain't going to invade Taiwan, man. We will go to war. In fact, nuclear war. Every human being on this earth will be fried in a nuclear war before we'll let uh, China invade and blow up anything in Taiwan. But— if China invades Taiwan, we'll blow it up ourselves. What sense does that make? Again, there is a contradiction. You say we must protect Taiwan because China could do something terrible to it, even though it's part of China. So we got to protect them, right? They got to be independent and sovereign. And we should tell China that if China invades, we will blow up the largest chip factory in the world, TSMC, that makes chips for the world. Might I add, if we would do that, it would destroy the economies. Everything has chips in it. You wouldn't be able to buy a computer. You wouldn't be able to buy a watch. You wouldn't be able to buy anything. Car, truck, forget it. Uh, How about this? An outboard motor for your boat. Any of that, you ain't getting no none because the chips are gone. So the U.S. is saying, we will blow up. Forget China. We're, how are we protecting Taiwan from China if we say, if China invades, that chip factory is far too important for us to allow it to fall into the hands of China? Well, wait a minute. If we are standing for the independence of Taiwan, wouldn't it be Taiwan's decision whether it falls into the hands of China? In fact, couldn't Taiwan wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? We've decided that we're going to call China because we need some more investment. They could they could pick up the phone. Hey, China. Yeah. Uh, we decided to double the size of TSMC. You got the loot. Well, China's got the loot. China would be like, how much? Uh, $300 billion. China would say, are you kidding me? I got that laying under the couch. Let's do it. But if we're standing up 
for Taiwan's independence, that would be our position. Independence and sovereignty means the people of that nation and the leaders of that nation make the decision. But we're saying we will make the decision to blow up their largest chip factory, the, the, the heart of industry in Taiwan. Well, it sounds to me like China don't need to attack Taiwan. We're talking about attacking Taiwan, first of all. And number two, let me add this. We say we're going to protect Taiwan from China because China might attack Taiwan, right? China's position is this. We, we don't want to have a war with uh, the people of Taiwan because they are Chinese people, which they are Chinese. They're all Chinese, right? So the position of China is, no, we're not going to attack Taiwan. We will have a peaceful reunification. They're Chinese. They're our brothers. We're not going to kill our brothers. That's the position of China. And the position of the United States is, yeah, we got to protect Taiwan from these people who said they don't want to attack them. Oh, but by the way, if they do, we'll kill them ourselves. I certainly think, once again, what's the word I use? contradiction and contradictions expose that the reality is that the whole policy is a fraud the whole thing you i hate to say this but i'll say this again you're being lied to you're being lied to you're being lied to now see what i just did what i just said you're never going to hear that on the mainstream media trust me you can turn on cnn fox msnbc none of them are going to report on this story because it, it would be embarrassing to their advertisers. A lot of them, are, they advertise Lockheed Martin, you name it. They ain't going to embarrass the advertisers. That's why I can say whatever I want. And next on Arts Express... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Early in May, that little squirt named Prince Charles was crowned as King Charles III, and three days of celebration took place, presumably to rejoice in the affirmation that once more some unelected and useless human being was to be elevated above all others in the land, festooned with powers and riches solely because of their genetics. That people can keep a straight face during all this in the year 2023, to me, is, is very remarkable. That the populace is fed up with the dog and pony show, though, was confirmed by the wonderful true story reported in the press that at the Royal Crescent Gardens in Bath, England, where a coronation reception was to be held for the visiting gentry, including Jill Biden, mowed into the grass lawn the night before was a giant penis. Now, I have always admired the English predilection for gardening and topiary, but I can safely say I have never been more delighted by British horticulture than this cocksure display. But I am digressing from my main focus today, and that is the plight of Julian Assange. As most of you probably know, Julian Assange has been imprisoned for many years now in the worst of conditions in the British prison of Belmarsh in solitary confinement much of the time. The U.S. is trying to extradite him to the States so that they can lock him away forever for the crime of revealing U.S. war crimes in Iraq. Now, if Assange had revealed only that, he might have been spared. But his truly unforgivable crime, the one for which Obama and Biden and the Clintons could never forgive him, was revealing the corruption of the Democratic Party as it deliberately sabotaged Bernie Sanders' campaign. And I believe that it's that revelation, more than any other, which is keeping Assange in prison still. How else to explain Obama's commutation of Chelsea Manning, who was the actual leaker of the Iraq War documents, while the man who did the journalistic duty of publishing the documents, Julian Assange, still languishes in prison. Well, there are so many lessons to be learned here for those who wish to look. 
and in particular, the way that dissidents get smeared in very coordinated campaigns and then shunned by the very journalists who should be speaking up for their rights, the rights of those who are actually doing real journalism that challenges a corrupt government. But such is not the case. The persecution of Julian Assange makes it absolutely clear that the purpose of the mainstream press in America is to amplify and normalize the corrupt actions of the ruling class and nothing else. Let's tie things together here a bit. That's the reason you may have not read about the letter that was released at the time of Charles' coronation from Julian Assange to Charles. It's a short letter, but an extraordinary one. In the tradition of letters written from prison, like Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, it's a letter from the oppressed calling out to the rest of the world to pay attention to what is happening. If there's any justice in the world, and I don't know if there is, the letter will be printed centuries from now in high school textbooks. But it's a good bet that right now most people aren't even aware of that letter. Now, for me, one of the best things about the letter is that it confirms that Assange, despite the tortures he's been through, still seems to have his mind intact, along with a sense of humor that owes much to Jonathan Swift and a modest proposal. Here, then, is Julian Assange's letter to Charles in full. To His Majesty, King Charles III, on the coronation of my liege, I thought it only fitting to extend a heartfelt invitation to you to commemorate the momentous occasion by visiting your very own kingdom within a kingdom, His Majesty's prison, Belmarsh. You will no doubt recall the wise words of a renowned playwright. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Ah! But what would that bard know of mercy faced with the reckoning at the dawn of your historic reign? After all, one can truly know the measure of a society by how it treats its prisoners, and your kingdom has surely excelled in that regard. Your Majesty's prison, Belmarsh, is located at the prestigious address of One Western Way, London, just a short fox hunt from the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. How delightful it must be to have such an esteemed establishment bear your name. It is here that 687 of your loyal subjects are held, supporting the United Kingdom's record as the nation with the largest prison population in Western Europe. As your noble government has recently declared, your kingdom is currently undergoing, quote, the biggest expansion of prison places in over a century, unquote with its ambitious projections showing an increase of the prison population from 82,000 to 106,000 within the next four years. Quite the legacy, indeed. As a political prisoner held at your majesty's pleasure on behalf of an embarrassed foreign sovereign, I am honored to reside within the walls of this world-class institution. Truly, your kingdom knows no bounds. During your visit, you will have the opportunity to feast upon the culinary delights prepared for your loyal subjects on a generous budget of two pounds per day. Savor the blended tuna heads and the ubiquitous reconstituted forms that are purportedly made from chicken. And worry not, for unlike lesser institutions such as Alcatraz or San Quentin, there's no communal dining in a mess hall. At Belmarsh, prisoners dine alone in their cells, ensuring the utmost intimacy with their meal. Beyond the gustatory pleasures, I can assure you that Belmarsh provides ample educational opportunities for your subjects. As Proverbs 22.6 has it, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Observe the shuffling cues at the medicine hatch, where inmates gather their prescriptions, not for daily use, but for the horizon-expanding experience of a big day out, all at once. 
You'll also have the opportunity to pay your respects to my late friend Manuel Santos, a gay man facing deportation to Bolsonaro's Brazil, who took his own life just eight yards from my cell using a crude rope fashioned from his bedsheets. His exquisite tenor voice now silenced forever. Venture further into the depths of Belmarsh and you will find the most isolated place within its walls, health care, or hell care, as its inhabitants lovingly call it. Here you will marvel at the sensible rules designed for everyone's safety, such as the prohibition of chess, while permitting the far less dangerous game of checkers. Deep within Hellcare lies the most gloriously uplifting place in all of Belmarsh, nay, the whole of the United Kingdom, the sublimely named Belmarsh End-of-Life Suite. Listen closely, and you may hear the prisoners' cries of, Brother, I'm going to die in here. A testament to the quality of both life and death within your prison. But fear not, for there is beauty to be found within these walls. Feast your eyes upon the picturesque crows nesting in the razor wire and the hundreds of hungry rats that call Belmarsh home. And if you come in the spring, you may even catch a glimpse of the ducklings laid by wayward mallards within the prison grounds. But don't delay, for the ravenous rats ensure their lives are fleeting. I implore you, King Charles, to visit His Majesty's prison, Belmarsh for it is an honor befitting a king. As you embark upon your reign, may you always remember the words of the King James Bible. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7 And may mercy be the guiding light of your kingdom, both within and without the walls of Belmarsh. Your most devoted subject, Julian Assange, a-9379-A-Y You've been listening to Julian Assange's letter from Belmarsh Prison, written on the occasion of the coronation of King Charles III. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express, with host Larry Miller. Hey, you know, we got almost all the original Sakaka 7 here. Right. What's that? An in-joke. You had to be there. It was one of the last big Washington marches, and we all ended up going down from Boston in a station wagon. Which Jeff had borrowed from a friend of his. An acquaintance. Some dude he thought he knew real well. We didn't all know each other that well yet. We get on the Jersey Turnpike, and we're low on gas, so we get off in Secaucus. Right where you pick up the Lincoln Tunnel? In two seconds, we're busted. <laughs> Every cop on the eastern seaboard was out that weekend trying to pick off pinkos on their way to Washington. The guy looks in the back of our trunk. No warrant or anything. And there's a rifle and an ounce of dope. Yeah, right, right. The cop says rifle's okay, right? But ooh, that marijuana. <laughs> At first, we thought the guy who loaned us the car was an FBI plan to set us up. It turned out he was just stupid. <laughs> so we spend the night in the cooler. Adjoining cells for men and women segregated from the rest of the prisoners. Right, so we don't poison their minds, <laughs> right? And we get hysterical, calling ourselves the Sakaka 7. Hi, this is John Sales, and you're listening to Arts Express. And coming up next on the show, eminent actress and performer Leslie Uggams talks race and class in her current film, Dottie and Soul, and what the Deadpool series and Roots star has to say about drawing from racist experiences in her own life to play this woman challenging a white man in blackface in this movie. Along with memories shared beginning in her childhood on stage and on the big and small screens of Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Ethel Waters, and Ruby Dee. First, some scenes from Dottie and Soul, then Leslie Uggams. Did somebody say acquisition? The business of transportation has just been irrevocably changed. And the face of that change is this toilet paper dragging bastard right here. <laughs> 
went to a party in shoe polish? Your girl posted a pic. She did what? You ruined my life. I honestly thought they would be staring at me. I was basically topless. We gotta have a new CEO. Excuse me? Until the acquisition goes through, you'll need a person of color. She's a 71-year-old snack cart vendor from my mother's retirement home. I'm not comfortable with that. If we hire someone qualified, Randy is just gonna push me out entirely. He's about as loyal as a teenage prostitute, bro. Uh, sex worker. I need to get a little more woke as 2023. Okay, I know it's a bit confusing. It's not confusing at all. You did something racist. So now you need my black face to save your white ass. I wouldn't phrase it like that. All they need is somebody to look the part. Buy yourself some clothes, shoes, a handbag. You going all pretty woman on me, eh? When it's all said and done, I ain't gonna f you. Dottie? You brought me in for one reason only. You can't afford to mess up a nine-figure deal with some tired-ass white boy ignorance. Remember, smile big, don't say a goddamn thing. You get what's going on, don't you? We still want you there. Oh, yeah, but I candy. I'm gonna make it right. If we're gonna be partners, we gotta think like partners. Every good idea this team has had since she was brought on board was hers. I'm 71. I know. I look 45. Fine. Just messing with you. Ooh, this is fun. So come and check me out now. Hello, Leslie Uggams, and welcome. Thank you. What was it about Dottie and Soul that got you enthusiastic to come on board for the production? Uh, I love the fact that you have a woman who is 70 years old and uh, she gets a, a, another chance to fulfill her dreams. And it felt, it felt to me like it, it was saying it, it's never too late. And what about your character, Dottie, and her take charge personality? Did you add any of your own ideas as to how you wanted her portrayed? No, not really. I mean, well, I always add, you know, my own ideas. But it, it, uh, Adam had written such an incredible script that it was it was all there. Of course, there were some, some moments where we would sit down and say, well, I don't think she would say it this way or she wouldn't say this particular line. But basically, I mean, he had it all there. Um, one of my favorite scenes got added after we had to wait over a year to finish the movie because uh, of the pandemic. We, had, mm. we were shut down. And uh, that was a scene where she uh, talks to him about the, the blackface. Mm. And yeah. uh, it was interesting when we started the movie, um, we were ahead of our time, and by the time we went back to, to finish the movie, the world had caught up because you had, you know, the George Floyd situation that happened, so many things that happened. And so it, it, it seemed like the timing was perfect yeah. for this movie. And have you experienced anything similar to Dottie in the real world regarding racism? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> you know, I was born in 1943, so of course I, I you know, I experienced that uh, all the time. And uh, that's, that's how, how it was. So you had to be better because you were expected to not be better. And so, uh, yeah, I had experiences where, uh, because I was black uh, was in the, a situation all the time where uh, people were happy to see me. <laughs> mm. But yes, of course I did. And had... I, did. I, I lost a contest once because uh, oh. I was uh, black because wow. the person that had won the contest before me was black and the sponsors didn't want to give the grand prize to another black artists hmm. so they tied the clock on me and i was seven years old so oh. it started early wow and how do you feel this movie reflects a different time today and what has changed about racism or not oh i think it does it well because i mean there's uh, the character of adam ian is uh caught having 
pictures of himself in blackface. And uh, we, first of all, we went through through that quite a bit uh, last few years. People taking pictures, and then all of a sudden they turn up, and they were in blackface. And so, therefore, uh, we have a, a wonderful moment where she addresses it with him. And uh, I think it's a, a, a lovely moment. It makes its point. I'm not beating anybody over the head, but she makes the point. Yeah. And he gets it. Now, the movie is also about class and how poor people struggle with poverty and landlords. What are your thoughts about that element in the film? Well, that's life. <laughs> you know, my people, my mother and father, they were hardworking people, struggling, uh, and, uh, you know, trying to make ends meet, trying to pay the rent, putting food on the table. Uh, uh, that's life. It still is life. People are struggling now, of course, you know. Uh, they're not getting paid enough to cover the expenses that they have. Nobody wants to give anybody a raise, and we live in different times where things are more expensive. So housing is a, is a problem, and we address that in the uh, movie because Dottie and her daughter are constantly being threatened about if they don't pay their rent, they're going to be thrown out yeah. in the street. So, uh, and then you want to take things that are necessary for people to get to work. You know, it's like here with the subway, if the subway is not working or the buses are not working, it's hard for people to get to work. And then they keep raising the prices on transportation, so that makes it hard. All of a sudden, their budget is shrinking because the prices are going up, so I... I, I I, I love the fact that this movie is basically talking about all those those things. And you had quite a breakout career as a little girl. What was it like for you on stage as an extra added attraction with Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald? Oh, well, that started when I was nine. Oh, it was great. I mean, I was a ham. I loved to sing. <laughs> and, you know, so you you didn't have to ask me but once. And to have this opportunity, the uh, Schiffmans put me uh, on the stage at the Apollo. And uh, <laughs> the first gig I did at the Apollo was with Louis Armstrong, who was extraordinary. I always say to people, I, my education into this show business was really a great education because I used to watch Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and Donna Washington and all these wonderful people that I work with every show. I never missed a show. I'd stand in the wings and I'd watch everything. And I would watch how they related to the audience and how the audience related to them. So it was the best school that you could ever, ever go to. And as a kid, um, they were so su sweet to me. They treated me like, you know, one of their own and, and my mother the, the same way. So uh, it was fun. And I only, I worked the Apollo during the holidays. So I, I was not taken out of school to to do the gig, and it, it was fun. And what about at six years old as well, playing the niece of Ethel Waters on TV in Beulah? Well, I played her niece once, and um, she took a, a liking to my mother and I, and she was incredible uh, because she invited my mother and I whenever she used to do what they call these soirees, and she would, with the a pianist, she would play these different private things, and she'd always invite my mother and I. And so I got to watch <laughs> the great Ethel Waters uh, in person, uh, singing like nobody else could sing. Um, it was funny, when we first met, she said, Uggams, are you related to that Uggams girl? And <laughs> my uh, Aunt Eloise was on Broadway with her cousin in the uh, Blackbirds of 1928 or 29, and where Ethel was uh, one of the stars. And name being so unusual, she said, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's you. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And what are your memories of Ruby D and your 42-year friendship with her until her passing in 2014? 
second. Oh, I loved Ruby. <laughs> oh, gosh. I had a great opportunity to work with her when I did a movie called Black Girl. And, uh, of course, <laughs> you know, you watch her and it, it was just uh, magic. And she's the sweetest, loveliest woman. And you have time to to talk to her and Ozzy, because Ozzy directed the movie that we did together yeah. as well. And it was a, just a, a glorious, glorious time. And she was one of my favorite movie actresses when I was a kid. I loved to go to the movies when I was a kid. And so when I saw Ruby Dee, you know, she was just uh, breathtaking as an actress. And mm. so it was, it was a glorious moment for me playing her daughter. And you once said, quote, I like playing against what people think of me. Would you say that's true of Dottie in this movie? Well, she's a, you know, a different character. I love the fact that I play women that they may look like they're the victim, mm. but they turn out they're not the victim. That's what I love about the different characters that, that, I've, that I've played. And, uh, uh, you know, she certainly is different from Blind Al. <laughs> and she's certainly different from Leo, who I played in Empire. And so uh, people, I don't know what they expect that I'm going to be playing, but it's never what they expect. <laughs> my phone will be ringing from friends of mine going, that was you? Oh, my God, I couldn't believe you did me. <laughs> it's such and such. So, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not... I, I, I'm a Gemini, you know, we like to do different things. And what are your thoughts about what you like audiences to figure out about race in this country from Dottie and Soul? Well, I mean, first of all, um, he, uh, Ethan gets an education um, that he, uh, let me put it, he, need, he gets some schooling that he needed because, you know, uh, that whole thing about him in blackface and everything, he thought it was funny, and, and it, but she points out it's not funny. Hurtful. Mm. <laughs> you know, nothing funny about, you, you know, a white person putting on blackface. What are you trying to say? You're trying to make people laugh. So how can that not be hurtful? And so, you know, I, the other thing that I feel about that and the, the racial things are naturally in there, is the fact that here is someone who all these years, just going back and forth, doing her thing, and you just don't really know the kind of person that she is until this opportunity comes, and all of a sudden you see, my God, this woman is brilliant. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why hadn't people seen it? And so I think it's a wonderful movie because you see a younger generation, Ethan and Dottie, the older generation, and how they learn from each other. Uh, he puts her in this new world, modern world, but she is bright enough to show him some things. And so my thing is we have to stop dismissing people just because the commercials say, after you're 65, take this pill, and, you know, like, like we all need something, otherwise we're not going to function, um, that we have stories to tell to each other, and we need to talk more to, uh, to the older people, to your grandmother, your mother, your aunt, your uncle, whatever. They have stories. They have wisdom. Yeah. And uh, we seem to dismiss it. And in this story, you find that, don't be dismissive of somebody because you never know what they know. <laughs> <laughs> and when Leslie Uggams looks in the mirror, what does she see? Uh, Leslie Uggams, <laughs> <laughs> daughter of Harold and Juanita Uggams. And uh, she's doing good <laughs> and enjoying it. Now, in terms of navigating the film world, how have you met the challenges both of race and ageism against older women in that world? Well, I seem to get a lot of jobs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, um, I've always been the kind of person that I'll stand on the cliff and uh, jump off and hope I make a soft landing. I like challenges and I like 
uh, if anybody wants to think that way, proving them wrong. And uh, I've been able to play some incredible women. Um, yeah. Nothing in my career has ever been planned. And uh, it's been fun because things come up and I go, hmm, I'd like to try and do that. And any last word on Daddy and Soul? Oh, it's a lovely, funny, funny movie. I've, I hadn't seen it until, you know, we had the, the screening, and I was laughing out loud. I mean, it's, a, it's funny, it's, it's relevant, and uh, it's a feel-good movie. Feel-good movie. I, God knows we need that right now. Mm. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Leslie Uggams, for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Daddy and Soul is in release this week. And we'll go out now with the bro deep dive into Striking Against the Empire. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro on the Hollywood Writers' Strike and how it's playing out as to what you will or won't see in release. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat breaking glass. Today's episode, Striking Against the Empire. What once was what is to be done about this dominance is now more appropriately altered to can anything be done? There are three ways that both globally and locally the power of the streamers is being challenged. The first in Europe is still the possibility of government intervention to level the playing field. Though as in many forms of the digital economy, with the EU already currently behind in the race for artificial intelligence, as exemplified in chat GPT, this intervention often comes in the too little, too late variety. There's a European mandate that the American streamers' content must be at least 30% local. Despite, or perhaps to surmount this mandate, the streamers are pilfering the best European series talent, with Netflix, for example, recently having hired Eleonora Adriata, formerly the head of Rai, Italian public television's drama department, and with the producers of the French espionage series Bureau of Legends, which has now become a global franchise, currently working for Disney+. In France, though, Following the Chinese model, each co-pro with an American streamer now must have a delegated French producer. The idea here is that the producer then absorbs the American model and can still instill it into French production, the way the Chinese allowed foreign companies to set up in China that then absorbed their know-how. There is also some progress being made in the battle of creative producers to not cede the rights to their series in perpetuity for an often slightly increased upfront payment. This change is a factor of government negotiation and pressure, but also due to the fact that the streamers, and Netflix in particular, have now acquired so much content that they no longer have any need to build up their catalog, and so can, after a specified time, let the property circulate. The most impactful challenge, though, at the moment is located in the belly of the beast. The biggest story in series and film production is the writer's strike. Since 2007, with a contract won in the wake of the last strike, the writers have been watching those gains steadily erode as their salaries declined on average uh, 4%, while profits in the entertainment industry as a whole, despite the debt, have soared. The streaming companies, on the other hand, now more budget conscious, have not budged in negotiations, trying to extract as much profit as possible from writers who have an increasingly more crucial role in the establishment of series TV, and whose hiring is now more precarious since series have shorter time spans, 8 to 10 episodes, as opposed to the former network model of 22. Those 8 to 10 episodes now also take longer to produce in the era of quality TV, but writers are being paid the same amount per show, and thus are forced, as are workers everywhere, to work longer hours for less pay. The showrunner Lisa Joy, who with Westworld behind her and currently engaged in Amazon's The Peripheral, is not in the precarious position of the majority of writers. When asked what the strike means to her, answered promptly that she was very much in sympathy with the strike, which would also lead to her getting to spend more time with my kids. As for the reason for avowed support for the union in the strike, she explained to a European audience where the benefits of social democracy, though systematically being lowered, still prevail that American writers have no job security, working show to show, and no safety net. That is, no health insurance, no long-term unemployment insurance, and no free education. Elsewhere, in a panel of European producers, 
the journalist moderator made the onerous suggestion that perhaps the Europeans could benefit by, in the wake of U.S. audiences' more willing acceptance of foreign languages and subtitles after the success of the South Korean Squid Game and the Spanish Money Heist, using their series as scab series and strike breakers, a suggestion the European producers declined to endorse. One of the points of contention in the writer's contract is the use of AI, with producers threatening to employ this latest technological breakthrough to author scripts, and the writers campaigning to keep AI out of the writing process. The problem here is that because of the declining quality which this article has mapped, and the whole history of Hollywood film and television production is rolling off an assembly line, some of the recent series look like they have already been written by programs like ChatGPT. However, this assembly line production can never replace well-written series. One need only look at two recent series released within a day of each other to observe this. Amazon's bloated, utterly unoriginal John Wick, True Lies, Kate Jason Bourne, Paint by Numbers, Citadel, which will become a global franchise with new entries in India and Italy, surprisingly exec produced by the Russo brothers, they of the Avengers fame, sounds like it has been spun off of a machine. To use the language of AI, the script, lacking an ounce of originality, is simply recombinatory. On the other hand, David E. Kelly's Love and Death, an extraordinary, minute examination of how unmet desires in a uh, suburb of Texas at the dawn of the repressive Reagan revolution erupt into violence. It's not a machine like spitting out of past cliches, but a highly original work. The third challenge to the power of the streamers is in the global content of showrunners willing to buck the trend of pure entertainment and create socially relevant series, which admittedly are in the vast majority. In this category, from Scandinavia, there was the aforementioned Danish series Nordland 99, as well as the Norwegian series The Fortress, which won the jury prize for writing, an eerie dystopian or apocalyptic series about Norway building a Trump wall with enough oil, wealth, and agriculture to sustain itself, shutting itself off from the rest of the world, but then falling prey to a bacteriological attack because of this isolation. In India-Pakistani production Limbo Land, Although much more Pakistani-centered, being shot amid the breathtaking peaks and lowlands of the Hunza Valley in Karachi is a succession-themed series, which, unlike that series, which is simply wealth porn, has an anti-capitalist point. Limbo Land centers on the decisions an old man, now a wealthy hotel owner, made in his life, shutting out the woman he loved in favor of the pursuit of money with a non-Western pace that equally belies the frantic pursuit of profit evidenced even in the editing of its American cousin. Equally, Black Santiago Club from Benin describes the fellow feeling around a jazz club that is being threatened by a developer who wants to gut the club and turn it into apartments. The film is crystal clear on both the communal spirit engendered by the club and the attempt to destroy that spirit, essentially by privatizing for profit what is a neighborhood treasure. Pedro Almodovar and his brother presented Mantiras Passageras, with an almost perfect pilot episode about a cosmetician who has staked everything on a corporate promotion and then is sabotaged and must go into practice for herself. The follow-up episodes, though, instead of being about her troubles setting up an affordable beauty clinic and taking this out of the province of the ultra-wealthy, instead concentrates too much on the sitcom element of her having to lie to maintain her social status. Finally, two other series highlighted racial inequality. The first was Canada's Little Bird, voted the audience favorite at the festival, which situated itself first in the present as it follows the path of a Native American ripped away from her family inserted into a Jewish professional milieu in which she has thrived, but which then flashes back to her painful abduction by the Canadian state and highlights the attitude of superiority that allowed that state to break up families in the name of progress. Netflix is Thicker Than Water, currently streaming on the network, a tour de four by showrunner, writer, and series lead Nawal Madani, highlights the racism of the French professional classes. As an Algerian female reporter must claw her way onto the set of French TV as an anchor woman, all the while dealing with her brother who is connected to a gang, as well as dealing with her sisters as the family is caught up in trying to rescue the brother. 
As a reporter, Faraz allowed her own curly black hair, the mark of her Arab heritage. But as an anchor to come into the living rooms of the white French public, she must straighten her hair and dye it blonde. After the changeover, she climbs into an elevator filled with nothing but dyed blonde French women, ascending to the top of the station hierarchy symbolically and physically. The dominant series genre, though, was the dystopian or apocalyptic series where the world either has ended or is in the process of ending. These are not necessarily progressive series since they may promote an inevitability about planetary destruction, negating activist attempts to rein in the fossil fuel industry or they may brand activists as dangerous and potential terrorists themselves. From South Korea came Duty After School, a fast-paced story that also cleverly interwove animation about high school students being armed to oppose alien invaders. A bit ominous given that the U.S. recently pledged to rearm the country with nuclear weapons to oppose an alien invasion from North Korea. Likewise, A Thin Line, a German series on Paramount Plus, followed two sister activists and hacktivists as they attempted to foil government attempts to further climate degradation. As Western economies everywhere decline, the streamers also find themselves in a precarious position with Peacock, a Comcast streamer made up of content from NBC Universal, now rumored to possibly lose its identity in a merger with Warner Brothers Discovery and in danger of becoming the first of the major streamers to throw in the towel. The struggle of writers, creative workers in general within the industry, alternative public stations and streamers, as well as audiences to oppose the corporate juggernauts continues. In the latest manifestation of this struggle, writers, never more important in the industry, attempt, through the time-honored tool of a strike, to fight off these latest attempts both to reduce their value by a regressive movement back to non-scripted reality television and a coming attempt to supplant their work in general through the onslaught of AI and chat GPTs, replacing of a writer's sensibility with a machinic recombination of genres, with a decline in series quality, supposedly motivated by decreasing budgets, readying audiences to accept this degraded mode of production. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat. Breaking glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at the Radio Goddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.